1: And welcome to Nats Chat for Monday, March 15th, 2021, along with Nats insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. You know, we got the news on Sunday that, in fact, A-Rod and J-Lo are sticking together. You see, two is better than one. So I don't know if we're like the A-Rod and J-Lo of Nats podcasting, Mark, but maybe there's some kind of good juju from their situation that we can get in our circumstance.
2: I'm not even going to ask which of us is is who in that (laughs) relationship there, but... I will just say I, we're going to start off on a real tangent here, but I've been thinking for the last year. Every time we see a Rod, you know, appearing at like the Super Bowl or New Year's Eve or the inauguration, like J Lo's got to be one of the only people in the world that is a bigger name than a Rod, and we're like he's second fiddle. And I've always thought that's impressive that he could actually handle being second fiddle. Maybe that was some of the issue there. I don't know. Hopefully they can work this out, and he's okay with being second fiddle because clearly she's number one in that relationship, right?
1: Maybe she just had no idea about the PED stuff and someone smartened her up. And now she's like, wait a second. He cheated. He took PEDs. I can't trust that home run total, that OPS total. Forget you. Get out of here. So they had to maybe work through those things. I don't
2: know. You know, if, if he'd hit 500 legitimate homers, she'd be okay with it. But 700 illegitimate, that's a different story.
1: That's a problem. That's a problem. Well, lots to do today on the That's Podcast. Plenty to discuss. We had an injury scare for Steven Strasburg on Sunday. Stop me if you've heard that before. How scared should we be? Uh, hopefully not too much, but we'll get into that coming up here in just a bit. Joe Ross uh, certainly seems has extended his lead in the competition for the number five spot in the Nats rotation. Victor Robles has been looking very good in that leadoff spot. Carter Keboom, uh not looking as good, at least not so far. Is it time to count out Tanner Rainey for the start of the season? Maybe the Nats' best reliever are going to be unavailable to begin the year, and we'll get into the latest regarding the Nationals and fans being in attendance uh, for games at Nats Park at the beginning of the regular season. We're closing in on opening night. April 1st is sooner than uh, you may think. Your Nats Mets, presumably, right? Max Scherzer, Jacob deGrom, cannot wait for that. You can uh, hit us up on Twitter. Continue to get so many great tweets from you guys at Nats underscore chat. You can email us, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. You have questions, you have comments, you have advertising inquiries. We want to hear from you. Uh, You can hit up the mastermind of this podcast, Tim Showers, again, Nats Chat Podcast at gmail.com. And you know, Mark, last episode we solicited for emails, especially from Nats listeners beyond just the DC area. And we continue to be just inundated in emails and you know alerts from people from outside the DMV who are Nats fans, who are listening to this podcast. The Rally mullet listening in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, two hours away from South Central or in South Central PA. Uh, He writes, I mentioned this because there is a pocket of Nats fans in Pennsylvania. We all root for the Nats. Uh, Eric J. in the Dominican Republic from the hometown of Luis Garcia sent us a very nice email. We got an email from Bernie, used to live in Virginia, now living in Denver, hitting us up. So the Nats representation across the country, across the globe, Mark, continues to be very strong.
2: Like we've been saying all along, it knows no bounds. And my wife has given us a new challenge. She heard the podcast where we were talking about North Korea, trying to break through there. She has an even greater challenge for us. She'd like us to get a listener on the International Space Station. Do you think we can do that?
1: Ah, can we pull that off? I don't know. We can try.
2: That would be a big step for us, if we can get off the planet, you know. But I, I think I think it's doable. I think it is possible. There've got to be Nats fans up there in in weightlessness. I think we can do it.
1: I am with you on that. I just want to get an email from Smiley Gonzalez. I think if we get that, we've truly arrived. So hopefully that's coming. Smiley, we're calling on you to hit us up, all right?
2: Well, what name would he go under? And would we know it was actually him?
1: <laughs> that's a good question. I don't know. That's the, Ask Jose Rio. Maybe he would know. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, all right, man. So Sunday, you know, it's kind of a ho-hum day in uh, national spring training land. You know, you're not really anticipating much. These are kind of the dog days of the Grapefruit League season. And sure enough, what happens, Steven Strasburg, in his second Grapefruit League outing, ends up exiting the outing with a left calf
0: strain. Gomes is going to use a mound visit here as Strasburg just stepped off the first base side of the mound and did a little flexing, like he might have a, a cramp or something in his leg. Now the entire infield's going to come in and around Strasburg, and Gomes is going to signal to the dugout. What do we know?
2: What we know... It was initially pretty encouraging as far as these things go. Uh, Strasburg was not uh, believing it was too serious. He said he really just felt it on that one last pitch that he threw in the third inning, a curveball.
0: Calf grabbed me a little bit, and um, luckily the reports and stuff from the doctor is uh, nothing nothing major.
2: If you've seen the video of it, you can see he just kind of lands a little awkwardly on his left foot. He kind of hops a little bit, kind of testing it out. Trainer came out to talk to him, and you know, Davey said it was no real conversation. They just wanted to find out where it was and then obviously get him out of the game because it's spring training and you're not going to take any chances there. Now, Strasburg is saying, hey, this is a real game, certainly a a big game late in the season, postseason. He'd still be pitching through it. I think that's what they always all want to say. And ultimately, you know, they're not the ones making that decision. But the doctors checked it out, didn't feel like it's anything that needs any kind of long-term rehab. He described it as day-to-day. I I think the key is going to be he's going to get up on Monday morning, see how it feels after a night on it, and now they can decide, okay, can he just stay right in his normal routine post-start, or do they need to start pushing anything back? And that's where it gets tricky because we're at a point now in spring training where there's not a whole lot of time left to fiddle around with rotations and pitching schedules they're going to need to know by Monday or Tuesday is he good to go and if not they're going to have to make some uh, some pretty significant adjustments
1: yeah i mean kind of the shame of this is that strasburg was looking good again uh, his final line is 2 into third scoreless innings four strikeouts versus one hit a double and a walk but of course he ends up exiting the game due to this ailment now the labeling was left calf strain. We know how this can go with Nationals injuries and the labeling and you know what is called one thing one day could be called something different the next day. But a- as best as we can tell, this was not a cramp because we know Strasbourg has a history of these cramps. This was in fact some kind of a strain.
2: So he referred to the fact that he's had cramps before and tried to pitch through them and described this as something different than that. And he knew it was something different. Now, whether that means this is better or worse, I'm not sure. But you could sort of see the way he reacted to it it was a different thing and it was specific to that one last pitch he was insisting on that that this was not something that he was feeling building up over those 3 innings it was just that one pitch probably landed a little awkwardly and and they'll go from there so i mean look i want to tend to not be too concerned here and believe that it's not a big deal and they're being you know very careful with it but like we're always saying with steven strasberg the key isn't so much does he, you know, how does he look when he's pitching and even, you know, what happens to him after that start. It's five days later, is he taking the mound again? Is he able to come back and pitch and have no problems? So it's one thing for him to come back and, 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 you know, maybe five days from now he's on the mound again and everything's fine. Okay, that's great. But then we still need to see it again five days after that to know for sure. And now you're talking about the end of spring. So this isn't going to be something that we're never going to be asking him about it again. Even if he's back on the mound in five days, it's going to be on everyone's mind. And so, you know, we're getting close to that point where it's at least going to be a question mark going into opening day. Doesn't mean it's going to affect him, but there's not really enough time for him to go make multiple starts and say everything's fine and then this is no longer even a, a concern of anyone's.
1: Yeah, it's just it's it's amazing, right? Because he makes just the two starts last year due to the carpal tunnel neuritis. That, as best as we can tell, has not been an issue at all so far this spring training. Like the the surgery last August went well, and it seems like the problem is in the past, and he looks good with with these first two outings. But then he can't even make it through a second outing without dealing with some kind of ailment again. And I mean, everyone knows this is kind of how it's gone for Strasburg in his career. When he's healthy, he's quite good. He just hasn't been healthy nearly enough. You know, he had the very good 2019 where he was durable. And of course, won World Series MVP prior to that year, previous four seasons, 15 through 18, an average of just 24 starts per regular season. Like he misses time and he misses chunks of time year in and year out. Let me ask you this, because I've thought about this, right? You, You try to think about, okay, what's the path by which the Nats are back in the postseason in 2021? Can the Nationals realistically in your mind, make the playoffs if Strasburg doesn't have a mostly healthy quality season in 2021? Or does he have to be mostly healthy and good in order for the Nats to get back to playing in October?
2: I think it's hard to imagine them making it without him making at least, say, 25 starts or so. If he's missing more time than that, they're dipping into their pitching depth I mean, at that point, it's going to take Max Scherzer being Cy Young, Max. It's going to take Patrick Corbin being elite. It's going to take John Lester being really good, and we haven't even seen Lester on a mound yet. And then now you're talking about guys like Joe Ross and and, and another one, Fetty or Voth, you know, being able to, to start and pitch consistently well for you. So no, I mean, if if I'm ranking a list of the Nats that they can least afford to lose for any length of time this year. I think you could say it's Strasburg. If he's not number one, he's he's in the top three. It's probably Strasburg. Uh, I might even put Trey Turner ahead of Juan Soto because of where else they are at shortstop and, and his importance to the team. And then maybe Max. It's Strasburg is right there at the top. So no, I mean, he, he doesn't have to make every single start, but he can't miss any significant amount of time. I, I would say minimum 25 starts for him. If he doesn't get to that, it's hard to see how they make the playoffs.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. And, and like with the Nats in 2021, they're so reliant on so many different people who could kind of go either way, either in terms of performance or health. And I think at the top of that list of wild cards is Strasburg. Like they really do need him to stay mostly healthy and pitch well. And there's kind of a macro issue here too, which is if he doesn't stay mostly healthy or he doesn't pitch well, you're now 0 for 2 in terms of the first two years of this $245 million contract. And the last thing the Nats need is for that contract to become one of these albatross deals that, you know, so many teams have dealt with in recent years where you're paying a guy a ton of money. You got years to go on that contract and he's not coming close to living up to it. So they need for him to have a big year, not just for this year. I think like for moving beyond this year, especially too, if this is going to be Max's final year with the Nats and Strasbourg is going to have to become your ace moving forward, you'd like for it to be with him coming off a good 2021. So hopefully that's the case.
2: Yeah. I I mean, look, we're kind of talking nightmare scenarios here, and hopefully that's not (laughs) what we're talking about the next time we're on the air with you guys. And and maybe he is fine and comes back, makes his next start. And this is just an afterthought. But like I said, with him, it's just always in the back of your mind. It's in a way that's not with other guys, even with Scherzer, who has dealt with his share of issues over the last few years. But it feels different when it happens to him. You kind of know it's a really serious thing and there aren't those kind of little nagging things, and he pitches through a lot. And with Strasburg, you're just kind of always on the edge of your seat, hoping that whatever he might deal with isn't the next thing that's going to cause him to miss any significant amount of time. He proved so much in 2019 to try to put that reputation to rest. Hopefully, that will be the case here again, and we're we're overreacting to this, but I learned a long time ago when I started in this business, you can never underplay an injury. <laughs> Unfortunately, very often they end up being more severe than it looks initially. Hopefully it's not the case here, but y- you can't just gloss over it.
1: Yeah, no doubt, especially given his history. So we hope Strasburg is well, and we hope he's back pitching sooner rather than later. Now, on the good side of things with the Nats rotation over the weekend, Joe Ross made a second start of the Great Fruit League season and for the most part looked good. I mean, there was some bad luck involved, some fielding errors by both Juan Soto Uh, in Carter Kibum, Soto a fielding error, Kibum a throwing error, but for Ross in this game on Saturday evening, a 4-3 loss to the Mets, he gives up two runs, both of which are unearned, three into third innings, three strikeouts versus two hits, both of which were singles, a walk, did have two hit-by-pitches, but by and large, and I know you were asking Davey Martinez the first few questions during his post-game press conference there. It, it certainly seemed like this was another step forward for Ross, and it certainly seemed like he did nothing to dissuade anyone from having the belief that it will be Joe Ross with that number five spot in the Natch rotation.
2: Yeah, I, the way that I approach this going into the spring, and I, I think it's only been confirmed ever since, is that this is Joe Ross's job to lose. They would like, ideally, for him to show that he is the guy for the job, and everything he has done so far suggests that he will be the guy for that job. He's number one, he's healthy. Number two, he doesn't appear to really be rusty after sitting out the year. The pitches appear to be effective. He's building up the pitch count, the velocity. I think he was at 95 at one point in that game. He struck out Francisco Lindor on sliders a couple times. That's a big deal for him. That's kind of his wipeout pitch. So these are all good signs. Now, that's not saying that Joe Ross is poised for a breakthrough season based on a couple of Grapefruit League starts but if the question going into this was okay with 2 weeks to go in camp is the fifth starters job still up for grabs or is it a concern i would say no i think it's pretty clear that barring something happening now that joe ross is going to be in the rotation and and that he will have earned it not because it's going to be by default but that he has actually gone out there and shown that he's ready to be this guy that they've always believed he could be
1: now another kind of sneaky thing from that game on saturday evening was that one of the guys in this fifth spot rotation competition Uh, Eric Fetty pitched and actually looked pretty good in relief. One run, three innings, four strikeouts versus two hits, no walks, and a wild pitch. Assuming Ross gets that fifth spot, is it a given that Fetty is in the bullpen to begin the season? where would we be with Austin Vogt? Like, I guess what I'm asking is the two guys on the outside looking in for the five spot, are they definitely in the bullpen to begin the year or not necessarily in your opinion?
2: I think it's going to be an interesting roster question when they get down to the end. And, and really it boils down to probably like that last 26th spot on the team. I think one of them for sure is in the bullpen as a long reliever, especially early in a season when you're maybe a little concerned about starters not going as deep into games. You want to have somebody that, that can give you length. So I do think one of them is there. The question is, is there room for both? That probably only happens if they keep like a nine man bullpen, which is possible with a, with a 26 man roster. If you don't feel like you need that extra bench player that maybe you would keep nine relievers, in which case maybe they both make the team. The problem there is, yeah, it's a nice insurance policy to have if somebody gets knocked out early or you got to, you know, whatever situation that you you need on back to back days, you need long relievers. But generally speaking, you're not going to need those guys a lot. If certainly if things go well, and then what ends up happening is these guys are not on a regular five day routine. They're not building themselves up so that when the day does come that you need a fill in starter because somebody else is hurt or you have a double header or whatever else it might be, they're not really on a normal starters routine. And I think ultimately that might be more important. Than having that extra guy in the bullpen just in case of emergency. So I think it makes more sense to keep one on your staff and have one of them starting every day at AAA, although the AAA season is not going to start right away. That's a whole nother issue. But somebody needs to be pitching every fifth day and being stretched out as a starter in case they're needed. And to me, Fetty is the more likely of the two for that to happen because he does have an option left. Austin Voth doesn't.
1: So we mentioned the bullpen and we also mentioned, hey, you know, we're getting closer to the start of the regular season. Nats have already made their first batch of cuts over the last few days here. Tanner Rainey, who, you know, I don't know that he projects to be the Nats' top reliever. That's probably Brad Hand. But if it ends up being that Rainey proves himself to be the Nats' best reliever in 2021, I don't think anybody's going to be shocked by that. But he's still dealing with this muscle injury. We're not seeing him pitch. Is it time to be a little concerned, Mark, about whether Rainey's going to be ready to go to begin the regular season?
2: Good news there is he is throwing off a mountain and faced some live hitters on Sunday for the first time. So that that's good news. And if that all goes well, then maybe we are only a few days away from seeing him in a game. But it kind of like with Strasburg, it sort of needs to happen now. If it's going to happen, it needs to happen real soon. You don't want a reliever to only have, you know, one week's worth of spring training games and then now go into the season and be counting on him, yeah, you could do it, but what you don't want to have happen, and and I've seen it happen with this team before, when that season starts, your manager needs to know that your relievers are available to pitch back-to-back days. You cannot go into this and already on day two or three of the season have guys who are unavailable because they've been used too much or they're not ready for that kind of workload. So they really need all their main relievers to, in that last week of camp, pitch back-to-back days, pitch you know, three out of five days, that kind of thing, so that they're already ready and used to that workload for when the season starts. So I think these next few days are critical for Rainey. If everything went well in the live bullpen session, if they think he is ready to uh, to get no game here very soon, I think it should be fine. But we're we're getting close to that point where it's got to happen, and if it doesn't, it may jeopardize his ability, not necessarily to be healthy on opening day, but to be as available as you need your best
0: relievers to be available.
1: Yeah, no question. And that's a guy, I mean, supremely high strikeout rate. I know there's a lot of optimism with what Tanner Rainey could end up being. And you think about, you know, if he's on and healthy and Brad Hand is the Brad Hand we've come to know and Daniel Hudson is able to bounce back. And that's an if, but, you know, we know he can be good. We certainly saw that two years ago. You think about, you know, Will Harris, if he's healthy and effective. There is a path where this bullpen is actually good this year. And like, you know, you you seem to have plausible depth for the first time in a while with these guys. I know it's a case of a lot of, you know, things have to go well with people and you could also see the bullpen struggling again, but it does kind of feel like, all right, you're not a sap if you feel like this bullpen is going to be halfway decent in 2021 is the point I'm trying to make.
2: Right. And the key there also is all the, the quantity of, of potentially quality relievers you have. Now in a perfect world, you got five guys that you can count on and they're all great. We all know that's more likely not to happen, but if you have a pool of that many candidates and then one of them is hurt or ineffective and one of them, Hey, just doesn't have it or is having a rough year then at least you still have other options and the problem that they've run into the last several years is they went into a season counting on you know three guys maybe and then one or even two of them blow up and and either are hurt or totally ineffective (laughs) cough trevor rosenthal
0: 11 out of 14 balls and look out that'll
2: get away and it's ball four And now Davey has no choice but to rely on one guy or two guys every single night. And you saw what that effect was on Sean Doolittle and even on Daniel Hudson somewhat last year. So the more potential quality arms you have down there, the less he has to rely on one or two of them, the better they are in the long run. So that's where I do think all this ties in together. Can they still be a good bullpen even even if Tanner Rainey is hurt? Yeah, but the more you have of them, you can afford to have one of them go down.
1: And of course, few things will help the bullpen, like the rotation getting back to where we know it can be and has been last year, a really bad year for the rotation. Hopefully this year going to be a lot better. So we know that one of the most dangerous things you can do is read too much into spring training game stats, right? I mean, you're talking about just a wide range of competition that people are facing, i.e. so many people who aren't going to sniff the majors in the upcoming season. You're also, of course, talking about very small sample sizes. So, you know, if a guy is like hitting really well, it may be based on, you know, five games, which is like, okay, what does that really mean? So with that as kind of a caveat, we did want to highlight something, and that is that Victor Robles so far, and he's been the Nats primary leadoff man, is doing quite well. Victor Robles threw games on Sunday, a four oh seven on base percentage in this Grapefruit League season. And it's not just based on getting hit by a bunch of pitches, all right? He's, he's, <laughs> he's drawn some walks. He's gotten some hits. He's doing the thing, Mark, that we talked about a few weeks ago on this podcast, where it's like, well, this is what you need to do in that number one spot. And so far, he's doing it. We're not trying to overreact. We're not trying to read too much into this. But it's feeling like, okay, this is kind of exactly what you would want to see if Robles is going to end up being the leadoff man that the Nats want him to be.
2: You may not want to overreact, but maybe I do. Maybe I want to actually read too much into this. No, I you're right. I've seen enough of it over the years to know that you gotta be really careful about spring training. And it's really more about how they look than what the numbers are. But here's what I can tell you based on what I've been able to see, and certainly what I'm hearing from the people who are down there, is that he does look like a guy who was poised to be their leadoff hitter. He is kind of embracing this idea, like you said, drawing walks four of them. You know, they don't want him to lose his aggressive. If, it's, if he gets a good pitch to hit early in the count, they want him to swing at that. And he is, but he's also showing an ability with two strikes to take an outside pitch that's down and away and not swing at it. That's one of his biggest issues. Or to take a pitch on the corner and just stick the back out, bat out and poke it to right field for a hit. He's had a couple of those. So these are all very encouraging signs of a guy who seems to understand what it is they're asking him to do and is now putting into practice. And I'll, I'll throw one more stat out at you. He's four for four on stolen bases, and that would obviously be a big part of leading off. And he's a guy who has the ability to run as well. He just needs to get on. So two weeks to go. A lot can still change. Uh, it's still relatively small sample. But it was clear to me coming into this that Davies' preferred one, two, three was Robles Soto-Turner. And so far, that has worked, and my belief is that unless it falls apart here in the next couple of weeks, this is what we're going to see to open the year. Now, it's then up to them to actually be able to do it when it counts, but so far, the, the signs are pretty positive and suggesting to me that this isn't just a, let's take a look at this in spring training and, and give it a try. It's, okay, this this could actually be what we do, and I think they're they're pretty satisfied with the results so far.
1: In terms of the fielding, I mean, we all know the story with Robles, excellent defensively in 19, really saw the defense plummet in 2020. Due to the change in his body type, he bulked up and really harmed him defensively. We haven't seen or heard much about how he's looked defensively so far. What have you been able to gather in terms of how he's doing in that regard?
2: It definitely seems like improvement there. Uh, He's made a couple of diving catches, including one that he was coming in on on Sunday. That was a real issue for him last year. The ball's in. He just couldn't get to them in time. And he made a nice one on Sunday, you know, yeah, it's, again, it's spring training. You're only going get so many opportunities to make, you know, above average plays. But uh, everybody down there says that he looks like his 2019 self physically and that that should be a good sign, you know, moving forward. Uh, it's such an underlying fascinating question to me about this coming season is. At the end of this, are we going to say, boy, 2020 really was the anomaly, or are we going to say, no, there actually were some indications there of of larger issues, good or bad? In the Nationals' case, they really want to believe that 2020 was the anomaly, and Victor Robles would be very high on the list of guys who wants that to be the case.
1: Yeah, man. I mean, it's, it, to me, it's not unlike the Strasburg thing where it's not just about 2021, but it's about moving forward. What do you have in Robles? Like if you have a stud center fielder, a guy who's going to be a defensive stalwart for years and an above league average batter, that is so precious. Like that is such an outstanding commodity to be in possession of. That would be great. But if he's going to be, you know, as I've comped him too, is this, if there's another Michael Taylor or Danny Espinosa situation where yeah, he is good defensively, but the bat leaves a lot to be desired then that's a different story. But if you've got yourself like a, a franchise-caliber center fielder out there, I mean, that is a game-changer. And with him and with Soto, and if you lock up Trey Turner, like that is a beautiful foundation to have from a position player standpoint for years to come. So it's a big, big year for Robles.
2: Think about this historically. How many center fielders have they gone through? I mean, they've never really consistently found that guy who could anchor that position for years and years. They've had good seasons. Like Denard Span was good for several years. Um, then he dealt with injuries. You know, they tried Michael Taylor there. I mean, they've had so many and, and they all kind of fit the same prototype that sort of fast lead off guy, good speed. And very few of them have actually lived up to what they were trying to make them into. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe Victor Robles actually will be that guy who lives up to it.
1: Yeah. And, you know, we hear all the time in baseball, right, you want to be strong up the middle. If you have moving forward, I mean, we'll see about catcher, right? But Trey Turner at shortstop, eventually, hopefully, right, Luis Garcia at second base and Robles in center, you could do a lot worse than that. Like, that's a pretty nice thing to have going up the middle moving forward.
2: And then a guy named Juan Soto in right field, who's not too bad either.
1: <laughs> yeah, you could you could make pay with something like that, no <laughs> doubt. Mark's got another installment of story time coming up, a story time involving Frank Robinson. Cannot wait for that. We'll get to that uh, in a moment here, but we did want to address a couple of other things. So Robles is trending well. Carter Keyboom, unfortunately, at least so far, is not through games on Sunday Keyboom, 182 batting average, 250 on base percentage, 273 slugging percentage. He had that throwing error in the uh, Joe Ross outing there the other evening. You know, again, it's early. Again, it's spring training. We don't want to overreact. But they obviously need Keeboom to be better this year. And, and I think the, the concern, too, is this. If Keeboom's not up to the challenge to be a quality every game third baseman, what are we talking about here? I, mean, I, I guess what Josh Harrison would be your third base option at that point?
2: That's the scary part of this. And that's why it seems to me that they are really going to be committed to Carter Keeboom, at least to start the season, unless something really strange You know, were to happen because unlike a year ago, where they knew they had as Drupal Cabrera, they're not really in a position like that right now. They don't have that other guy. Yes, Harrison could do it, but they feel like his value is his ability to play a a bunch of positions and come off the bench, and he's not really an everyday third baseman. You know, there was always that thought of, well, maybe Luis Garcia makes the team and he could play second, and then Starlin Castro moves to third, but. Castro's not taking any time at third base this spring. He's not taking grounders there. Garcia's pretty much been restricted to second base and shortstop. And they're really concerned about Garcia's long-term development. They do not want to rush him. They, they had to bring him up last year because of the Castro injury, but they're not going to force that issue if they don't have to. So despite what the numbers may say and even what the eyes may be telling you, I feel like they are going to be committed to Carter keep him at least to start the year. And then it's going to be a matter of how long do they ride with him? You know, how long is the rope? for him. So, you know, let's see. Hopefully there are, you know, better at bats. I know Davey's talked about he's hit the ball hard and had some bad luck. And, you know, maybe it's one of those cases where he just needs a couple to start, uh, you know, falling in for him. But watching Sunday's game, I saw him swing right through an 0-2 fastball down the pipe. And I mean, that's the kind of stuff you just can't miss those kind of pitches. And and, and a guy who has three extra base hits in the major leagues over like 160 plate appearances. I mean, you've got to be able to, to barrel up pitches that are hittable and you know we're not seeing a lot of that at this point
1: yeah it's interesting with the Nats because one of the things that I think it's easy to take for granted is that all of these highly touted position playing prospects for the most part have panned out you know Ryan Zimmerman Bryce Harper Anthony Rendon Juan Soto you know even Victor Robles like you know we'll see but like it's not like he's been a bust or anything like that by and large like the highly touted Nationals position player prospect has worked out and sometimes amazingly so like with Soto it's not a given, though, that these guys pan out like a lot of franchises deal with this where a guy is supposed to be good. And for whatever reason, it just never happens. And you do wonder if maybe kiboom is that guy where like, you know, he was well regarded first round pick and it just doesn't end up happening. I mean, you don't write him off yet. We're not at that point, but it's not you know, we've kind of been spoiled by this. We're like, we're like oh, he's the next great Nat player. It's like, well, it doesn't always work out that way. A lot of teams have dealt with that.
2: You're right. And it's why uh, I was telling a lot of people like a year ago, or maybe down on Robles, like, well, hang on a second. Like, what he did is kind of the norm. You have your moments as a rookie, but maybe you struggle somewhat. Most of these guys do take a few years before they pan out. And we've been very, very spoiled here over the years with – top prospects that not only have panned out in the long run, but were great right from the get-go. Rookie of the Year type candidates. Even Ryan Zimmerman, remember, he almost won Rookie of the Year. He, he lost, I think, by one point to Hanley Ramirez for Rookie of the Year. So, I mean, they have a tremendous track record of these guys coming up quickly and being great right at the start. And that's not always the case. It does take time. And so that's why you don't want to write off someone like Kibum, who's a first-round pick and obviously is a first-round pick for a reason. But I'm real curious to see what how long is the rope there? And is that a product of, you know, what other options they have or lack of options they have, or is it a product of them saying, no, we do still ultimately believe in this guy, and so we're gonna let him work his way out of it? One of the negatives that they have to being a contending team every year or believing that they're a contender is that they can't really afford to let guys fail at the big league level. We saw it with Lucas Giolito. You know, you send him to a, a team that's not Expecting to win right away, they can let him have some struggles and figure it out in the long run. And last year with Keyboom, they couldn't afford to let it go much longer. They sent him down for a little bit. You know, where are they at this year? They're in win now mode. And so if he is struggling, do they stick with him or do they say, no, we need to win right now? And then how does that affect his long term development?
1: Yeah, that's an excellent point because the Key Boom conversation actually got me to thinking about a guy who was in the news lately with him retiring, and that is Nick Marcakis. When the Orioles brought up Marcakis in 06, they were not a good team. And they just kind of threw him out there and said, "Okay, sink or swim like this is going to be your time to show us what you can do. And initially he looked awful, but he got better as that season went on. And it was like, you know, you wonder, had they been in contention? Had they pulled the plug? You know, who knows what ends up happening with him? And I think that's a great point. Like the Nats don't have that luxury. Maybe that luxury is as little as it's ever been because of the state of the National League East. Like this figures to be a very competitive division this year where every game, every series, certainly within the division is going to be meaningful. So if a guy slumps, say, over the first two weeks, it's like, all right, we got to move on to somebody else. So it's it's a tough spot that they're in with a guy like Cuban because they want him to pan out. But, you know, you can't just punt away games.
2: And this is why, you know, they always talk about as much as fans are pleading, like, hey, call this guy up. He's got great numbers at AAA. He's ready. Call him up. And Rizzo will say, no, hang on. We need to make sure he's fully ready. We don't want to bring him up here and put him into a tough spot. And if you remember in 2019, he started the year at AAA and was tearing it up, hitting 360 or something like that. Trey Turner breaks his finger in the first week of the season. And everyone says, okay, well, you're going to call up Keyboom to play shortstop, right? And Rizzo says, no, hang on. We need to give him a little bit of time here. And so they went with Wilmer Defoe and it did not go well, as it often did when Wilmer Defoe was in the everyday lineup. And now you're getting to, to late April. The team is off to a terrible start. They are really struggling. They need to turn it around. keyboom has got big numbers. So they go ahead and call him up. They throw him into the fire. And aside from that, you know, that early home run or two that he hit, he really struggled, especially in the field cost them some games as a result. And you hope that doesn't have a long-term negative effect on a guy, but it can. And that's that's the reason why they always say, whenever we do call these guys up, we want to make sure they're ready. We don't want to have to send them back down. We'll see. There's a long way to go in this guy's career and what he's going to become. We don't know yet. But it it complicates matters when you're trying to do this on a team that expects to win. And when things don't go well, you can't afford to just stick with a, a guy who's struggling.
1: All right, one more topic before story time, and that has to do with as the attendance turns when it comes to Nationals Park and what we're going to be looking at to begin the season. So the Nats, as of Sunday, are the last team in Major League Baseball to not have announced plans in terms of attendance at home games to begin the 2021 season. And we say that not as a knock on the Nats because it's not their fault. They're still waiting to see where things stand with Washington, D.C., but understand with every other major league team, there is now policy in place regarding what the approach is going to be with fans to begin the season. Uh, A lot of you listening probably heard about this. Uh, The Orioles this past Friday announcing that they're going to begin the regular season with about 11,000 fans per game at Oriole Park at Camden Yards, operating at about 25% capacity. Could have operated at 50% capacity, as was uh, proclaimed by the Governor Larry Hogan the previous Tuesday, but said, no, we'll, you know, we'll take it. Uh, at least semi-cautiously, we'll start out at the 25% mark, 11,000 fans. I mean, you know, the O's will be lucky to draw 11,000, but I digress. That's not, it's not an Orioles podcast, but, uh, but with the Nats, we're still waiting, and we're still waiting to see what D.C. is going to do. Now, you know, we talked about this the last few podcasts. Mayor Bowser last week did certainly indicate that good news was coming in terms of fans being allowed to go to the ballpark, but nothing still has been declared. We keep noting this in this installment of the show we're getting closer to opening night. I'm sure if you're the Nats, like you want to start making planes, you want to be able to start selling tickets. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this would like to be able to purchase tickets if they want to attend. What are we thinking here, man? I mean, are we going to hear something in the next few days or what? Is this uh, is, is the drama going to be prolonged uh, into uh, the next
2: weekend here? I think one way or the other, we're going to have to hear here in the next couple of days. They did say in their letter to the Nationals. And remember, they actually did formally send the Nationals a letter denying their request to have fans, but then said, we will revisit this in mid-March. Well, it's what, uh, March 15th. So I think we've reached the middle of the month. So I I think we're in the next day or two going to need to know one way or the other what the answer is. And I, I said all along, you know, I was interested to see what the other cities did and, and not not the jurisdictions that have been more open all along, like Texas and Florida, but what the other Uh, cities and states that have been more restrictive over the last year, like California, like Chicago and uh, Seattle and a a few others. And they've all, it's not that every team has officially announced and there's still a little bit of gray area of how many they'll be allowed, but the governments of all those places have said, you are approved for X percentage. The majority of teams are around 20 to 25% capacity. There are a few that are less than that, more in the 10% the low range the tigers are going to be the lowest at 1000 fans that could change the governor of Michigan just gave a blanket 1000 fans for any sporting event which is weird because like could you at a high school baseball game have 1000 fans and then also at Comerica Park have 1000 fans a little different situation there you would hope that would you know they they would adjust for that um, New York is allowing 10% at this point so you know everyone else has come out and said it now and If you're making your decision based on what any other communities are doing, it would seem like that's a good sign that they are going to at least allow something. But as we've seen from the beginning... DC operates as its own entity. It has the right to do that. The numbers in the district in terms of you know, the virus and the spread of it has been pretty good relative to the rest of the country. And I'm sure the decision makers believe that the restrictions they've had in place have had something to do with that. And, you know, you don't want to risk causing a, a major outbreak now as we're getting very close to the end of this. So. uh, There's a lot of issues to resolve here, but I do think one way or the other they need to know in the next day or two so that they can start making preparations for it. And my fingers are crossed that they're going to allow at least some number of fans to start the year and then you gradually build up as it goes along
1: yeah I mean, we hear all the time, right? Follow the science, which I think is the way to go. I think the science, the data says that you should have some fans in the ballpark, and you can do it safely. I mean, one of the beautiful things about baseball is you can do it outdoors, right? Open air. You can very much socially distance with these expansive ballparks. I mean, there's no reason you can't make this work. so I, I would be really surprised, but I mean, it, it, it sounded the last time Mayor Bowser spoke about this, like she's going to give the green light on this. I, I guess it's just a little curious, like why hasn't it happened already? And, you know, I, I know we got into this the last time. There is a history here with the Nats in D.C. and the pandemic. And, you know, what happened with Juan Soto and, uh, you know, for a while there, that drama about whether the Nats be able to hold games at Nationals Park in 2020. If the Nats don't get the green light to have fans opening night, uh, I think you're going to have some real issues. I, I mean, the Nats would be furious. And I think they'd have every right to be. Like, no one's saying allow 40,000, but, I mean, can you, can you do 2,000, 5,000, 10,000? Like, it's I don't think it's unreasonable. This area has done a good job of the pandemic, all things considered. I think people should be trusted to continue to do a good job, and uh, hopefully that's the case. So we'll see.
2: Yeah, I, I think so, but you're right. There is history in that relationship between team and City, and um, that would the relationship would probably be damaged if the Nationals are not given at least some authority to, to have fans uh, to start the season.
1: All right, so one of the great characters— the Nationals have had, and of course, he wasn't just a character. He's one of the greatest players in the history of the game, but Frank Robinson, the first manager for the Nationals franchise upon it coming to D.C., you you must have like a book of stories from Frank Robinson, but... (laughs) As we are, as we get into another installment of Story Time with Mark here, what's a good, like, Frank nugget you can drop on this year before we call it a show?
2: Yeah, I'm sure we'll get to many of these throughout the uh, the course of the season. I've been trying to pick out spring training stories to start out with here because we are in spring training. And let me just start by saying that we've been very fortunate, you know, as many managers as the Nationals have had, they've all been great to deal with from a media standpoint. I've enjoyed getting to know them all. They all have different personalities, different histories in the game, but they've all been really good to deal with. But I've always believed that, you know, whenever my career is done, whenever that day comes, I'm going to look back and say, man, I got to be with Frank Robinson every day for two years. And as a, a true highlight, maybe the highlight of my career, it was really a special thing to get to know him. And because it was brand new in the city, you know, what it meant to the franchise to have him as their manager. Now that said, Frank knew how good of a player he was, and he wanted everyone else to know how good of a player he was. This is, you know, one of the greatest of all time. There's no debate over that, but that meant something to him, that he wasn't just any old guy. He was the Frank Robinson. And so this story comes from spring training, and this is back when there were still some interest in the team in Montreal because they were still new. And so there were actually some Montreal reporters who came to spring training that first year. And I remember one of them in Frank's press conference asking him or saying, hey, Frank, I, I was wondering if I could ask you about Gary Carter. And Frank's kind of gives a look like, like, what do you want to ask me about Gary Carter for? Former Expos grade. And the guy says, well, you know, he's a Hall of Famer. You're a Hall of Famer. And Frank interrupts him. And he wags his finger, and says, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh He's in the Hall of Fame. I am a Hall of Famer. <laughs> okay. Now, there's a little silence in the room as we're trying to figure out, wait, what did he just say there? It's like, you say that again in your head. He's in the Hall of Fame. I am a Hall of Famer. And here's what that means. Yeah, there are a bunch of guys who are in the Hall of Fame, and they get in, you know, for their reasons, and and in most cases they are worthy of it. But there are a few, like Frank Robinson, who believe that they are in a different class of Hall of Fame. They're the first ballot guys. They're the no doubters, the inner circle, whatever you want to call it. And even among the Hall of Famers, there's maybe a little bit of class system there. And Frank wanted to make it known. I I don't know what his thoughts on Gary Carter as a player, as a person, any of that was. But he certainly believed that he was in a different class than Gary Carter, despite the fact that they were both, you know, have their plaques enshrined in the same room in Cooperstown.
1: That is vintage Frank Robinson. Now, did he stare down the guy the way Frank once stared down Mike <laughs> Sosha or did that not happen?
2: No, no. it was it, We, we kind of quickly moved on to the next subject. And it was almost one of those like everyone paused like, wait, what did he just say? And it took you a few seconds to figure it out. It's like. Oh, oh, okay. All right, Frank. I see where you went there with that one. Again, he loved to have that gruff exterior and, and he described himself as the intimidator. And when he needed to be, especially on the field, he was, but deep down, he was a softy. He was a, he, and. And he actually wanted, especially when it came to members of the media, he wanted you to be able to kind of give it back to him a little bit. He did not want people to fawn over him. Oh, the great Frank Robinson. Like, he knew he was great. He didn't need you to tell him that he was great. He wanted you to actually be able to kind of take a punch and give it back a little bit. And I learned that from our good friend Tom Levero, who had covered him uh, in Baltimore years uh, before that and had told me when I was starting on the beat listen, Frank's going to try to intimidate you, but he wants to see, can you take it or not? And it's a tough thing for a young reporter to do. But, you know, hopefully I showed it. And, and certainly over the course of those two years, got to kind of break through that barrier and had a really nice relationship with him.
1: Gary Carter is a worthy Hall of Famer, by the way, just for the record. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you know, it's, it's funny hearing you talk about how Frank would talk about himself, because I, I don't know if this is Abnormal in terms of the uh, frequency with which the Nats have had managers like this, but Frank Robinson, Davey Johnson, Dusty Baker—they all you could tell were very proud of their playing careers, and rightfully so. They all, all three of them had very good playing careers, but they would let you know about things they did. They would let you know about their experiences. Like it always would kind of come back to them when they <laughs> would talk about things, especially with Dusty and Davey. Like they had a way. It seemed to me. I mean, you dealt with them far more than I did, but they had a way of kind of flipping and framing things so that it's somehow related to something they experienced when they played back in the day.
2: The number of stories that actually both of them that that Dusty Baker told and Davey Johnson told about Hank Aaron. Well, you know, Hank once told me or when I was playing with Hank because they both had in Atlanta uh, at different points in their career. Yeah, no, they absolutely would love to reference that stuff. And they they wanted you to know that hey, they've been through this before. There, there's nothing that's going to come up now that they've never experienced before. And I think they also both got a kick out of, and at times would be frustrated with the fact that some of their players didn't even know what kind of players they were <laughs> when they were in the league. That Frank had told the story about I think it was a, a foreign player, maybe from the Dominican Republic, who kind of like was talking back at Frank, like, "Hey, what do you know about anything?" And Frank kind of looked at him, and one of the teammates said, like, "You know, he he played." Like, he, he he's in the Hall of Fame. He's a Hall of Famer. And the guy had to go, like, look him up and didn't even realize that his manager was one of the, you know, 10 to 15 greatest players of all time. And just maybe some of today's players don't really quite appreciate the history and understand what their mentors had been through.
1: Yeah, well, Frank meant a lot to the franchise. Uh, I, know, I know it didn't end in the best of ways, but that 2005 season, especially the first half of that 2005 season, I mean, 50 and 31 over the first 81 games with that roster. Okay, I mean that that was not a 50 and 31 roster. I, I remember the run differential was future too, and they went 50 and 31. That's that, that is good managing where you can take a team like that to 50 and 31.
2: He never got enough credit as a manager, so you know he never made the playoffs as a manager with all his teams. But in almost every case, his teams outperformed what they were expected to do. He received manager of the year votes. I think with almost I think every team that he managed for, at least one of those years, he received votes for it. He did have a way of getting more out of his teams. He was never blessed with a great roster anywhere that he managed and I think he probably deserves more credit we don't think of him as being a great manager but I think he deserves more credit than he gets
1: I'm with you on that uh, you tell us what you think uh, hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat keep the feedback coming by email we want to know where you're listening from the international representation for Nationals Nation really has been impressive
2: intergalactic
1: intergalactic that's right If uh, do as Mrs. Zuckerman wants we want representation from the universe from the space skies at some point here but Nats chat podcast at gmail.com. For advertising inquiries, hit up the man behind all of this, the great Tim Showbers. Again, Podcast at gmail.com. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Goldie. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast.
0: There's Frank Robinson and Mike Soja having some words. Look at this. Mike's hot, so is everybody else. <laughs> Will Cordero is pit-pulling
1: Mickey Hatcher away from the pack. But Frank Robinson thought... Brendan Donnelly, even before throwing a pitch, even before warming up, he wanted the umpires to check the glove.
4: Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in.